You are listening to sermon audio from College Creek Church in Annapolis, Maryland. For more information on this local body of believers, visit us online at collegecreekchurch.org or in person every Sunday at 11 a.m. Well, this morning, we're going to talk about the most consequential trial in the history of the world. We're not talking about the Salem Witch Trials or the the Nuremberg Trials or the O.J. Simpson Trial or the Will Smith Just Slapped Chris Rock Trial. We're talking about the most consequential trial in the history of the world, the trial of Jesus, Uh, the trial that ultimately will send him to his death. Um, But in that, we'll open the door um, to life um, for all who would believe in him. The single most consequential trial in the history of humanity is the trial of Jesus before Pontius Pilate, which we're going to look at this morning from Matthew chapter 27. But before we, before we jump into the text, let me just catch you up with where we are in the story of Jesus. Um, two weeks ago, you may remember that we were in Matthew 21 and we talked about the triumphal entry of Jesus, what we might call Palm Sunday, which next week is Palm Sunday. That's when we remember that happening. But Palm Sunday marks the beginning of sort of the last week of Jesus's life before his death and resurrection. Of course, his life goes on to this day, but before his crucifixion. And so two weeks ago, we began that journey and the events of that day sort of mark a rising tension among, um, among the people in Jerusalem, specifically a rising tension between Jesus and the religious leaders. And so then last week, um, we saw those religious leaders who have begun to plot against Jesus with envy and evil in their hearts. They've begun to plot against Jesus. Um, last week, we see Jesus sort of confronting them, but then also teaching his disciples. And actually some really remarkable teaching happens in that last week of Jesus's life as he lays out for them what's going to happen, right? The, the kingdom is coming, he says. And so last week we talked about that. He gathered all of his disciples around him and he taught them of the coming kingdom. He told them, that, hey, you need to always be ready. And they might say, well, how do we get ready? And he said, here's how you get ready. You live as part of the kingdom, as citizens of the kingdom of God. And they say, okay, well, what does it look like to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God? And that's what we looked specifically at last night. This story really that Jesus lays out of the final judgment is the separation of the sheep and, and the goats. But what we are told there is that we, if we're followers of Jesus, we have been given the heart of God. And the heart of God is a heart of love. And so to live for his kingdom, to live as citizens of the kingdom of God is to live a life that is full of love for others, specifically a life of love for those in need. And so just after those teachings about the, this warning, right, um, of the coming judgment of the kingdom, we see we're given some insight into what the religious leaders are thinking. And the very next verses, we're told that and in some ways we might say the plot is thickening because they are out to kill Jesus. And here's what we see in Matthew 26, verses three and four. It says, then the chief priest and all the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together 
in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill him. There's there's tension that is rising in Jerusalem. And on Thursday night of that week, they will set this plan into motion. Having conspired together, and then they conspired with Judas, one of Jesus's very own disciples. They wait until the cover of darkness has come, has set in, and then they go and find Jesus. They find him in the garden of Gethsemane. And we're told of his arrest at the end of of chapter 26. We're told about his first trial that he faces, but that trial is before the high priest before the religious leaders. And at the end of the trial, they, they cast a verdict. Here's what they say in Matthew 26, verse 66. What is your judgment? And here's the high priest. They answered, he deserves death. But here's the problem for them. As much power as the religious leaders pretended to have, They had no authority in Rome. The trial that they had just held was basically inconsequential, right? The verdict that they had passed did not matter, and they certainly could do nothing to carry out this sentence. Judge Judy has more authority than Caiaphas. It doesn't matter that he's been condemned to death by Caiaphas. They can't do it. And so the trial that we want to look at this morning is so important because this is a trial before someone who can actually do something about it. His trial before Pilate in chapter 27. We're told at the very beginning of chapter 27 that when Friday morning came, they were the first in line at Pilate's palace. That's what verses one and two of chapter 27 says. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people, they took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and they led him away and they delivered him over to Pilate, the governor, someone who has some actual authority. And so we want to look this morning at that trial. And we find that trial starting in verse 11 of chapter 27. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and, and turn. If you haven't already, go ahead and turn to Matthew 27. We're going to be reading verses 11 to 26. If you picked up one of these Bibles on your, on your way in, you'll find it starting on page 924. And if you've picked up one of those Bibles in the past and you looked at it and you thought, there's no way I could read this. This print is so small. I need you to know we got new Bibles with print that you can actually read. Um, So pick up one of those Bibles, page 924. If you don't have a Bible at home, please take one of those with you. It's our gift to you. We'd love for you to have it. Um, Let me read for us from Matthew 27. Starting in verse 11, it says this. Now, Jesus stood before the governor. And the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priest and elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. 
So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man. For I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priest and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. And then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Now there are perhaps a lot of different ways that we could tackle this particular text. But what I want us to think about is, is this. I want us to consider the five questions, the five questions of the trial of Jesus. What do these questions reveal to us about Jesus? What do they reveal to us about the other players in the story? And perhaps most importantly, what might these questions reveal about ourselves as well? So the first question, we see it there in the very first verse we read. Pilate asked Jesus, he says, are you the king of the Jews? Now it may seem a little bit like a question kind of out of left field here. It's totally out of context. That's because Matthew leaves a little bit of information out when he, uh, when he puts this in there. So luckily we have four gospels. They all talk about this story. So they fill in a little bit of the missing piece here. So the Jewish leaders... The Jewish leaders, not only did they not have the authority to kill someone, but also they convicted Jesus of blasphemy. And let me tell you, Rome didn't care about blasphemy. And so if he got convicted, if Jesus gets convicted of blasphemy, that's not going to do them any good in the court of Rome. And so they have to come up with a different charge a different thing to to call him to account for. So here's what they do. They tell Pilate something a lot more sinister. They tell Pilate that he's been plotting, that Jesus has been plotting to overthrow Rome, to overthrow Caesar. He's been plotting an insurrection. And so that's the charge that they levy against him. We actually see it in Luke's account more clearly. It says this, there before Pilate says they began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. The reason we know that they're lying is because just a couple of chapters before, we see Jesus actually saying, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's pay your taxes. It's Caesar's money. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's, he says. 
But it's because of this accusation that Pilate is going to say to them this question, right? Are you the king of the Jews? But there's perhaps a deeper thing going on as well. Right? In fact, in, in John's, John's account of this exchange, Jesus actually reassures Pilate. He reassures him that the kingdom that he has is not a kingdom of this world. He says, my kingdom's a different kind of kingdom than the one you're worried. It's as if he was aware that Pilate's concern in part is that Jesus was going to confront his own authority, his own throne. Right? But as we've seen in, in previous weeks, the differences between their two kingdoms are stark. And we see it here again, right? As Pilate sort of clings to his power, Jesus willingly, humbly gives his power away. I mean, for being a ruler, Pilate is living in constant fear of the very people that he's supposed to be ruling over. He's so concerned. He's so concerned about a riot in verse 24. He's so concerned about a riot that he's willing to send an innocent person to their death because he's afraid of the, of the people that he's supposed to be ruling over. He bows to the whims of the people, the people who demand death. Meanwhile, Jesus will actually demand that people will bow to him in order that they might find life. And so every year, this, this idea of a prisoner being released, have you thought about that? Every year they release a prisoner. Who does that? What sort of ruler does that? If you're ruling over people, if you've conquered the land and you're ruling over, let me tell you what you don't do. You don't release a prisoner every year. The only reason you would do that is if you're trying to win some favor with the crowds because you're, well, you're afraid. You're afraid that they're gonna riot. You're afraid that they're gonna come and take your authority away. And so you're constantly giving over to them, bowing to their whims. So this idea that every year at Passover, Pilate would just hand a prisoner over is strange at least, especially from an empire like Rome. It seems certainly to be a practice that Pilate has just put in place because he is, he's attempting to quell the crowds. But all that defensiveness, think about this, all the defensiveness of Pilate is contrasted with Jesus. This humble, silent Jesus, sitting silently as people hurl insults at him, hurl accusations against him. He humbly sits and silence, which prompts the second question of the text. Pilate looks at him in verse 13. He says, do you, do you hear what they're saying? Do you hear what they testify against you? Pilate is amazed at his silence, right? Perhaps in part because it's the exact opposite way that Pilate would have responded to the same sorts of accusations and challenges to his authority. But Jesus isn't interested in arguing over whether or not he's going to die. Because as he told us already in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, he says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. Jesus looks out at the crowds that are yelling accusations, that are trying to send him to his death. And he says, you can't harm me. No one takes my life from me. 
but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. That's the charge that I've received from my father. So Jesus sits silently because unlike Pilate, he is secure in his rule. He's secure in his reign. He has authority to lay his life down. He has authority to take it up again. But in his silence, he's also fulfilling prophecy. As it was written in Isaiah 53, 7, he, Jesus, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Is Jesus the king of the Jews? Well, not in the way that the Jewish leaders meant and not in the way that Pilate feared, but yes, he is the king of the Jews. But I might ask this question, is he the king of your life? Who's reigning in your heart? Are you clinging to, fearfully clinging to power like Pilate is? Or have you given yourself and your little kingdom over to Jesus, trusting that his way is always best? Who's the king of your heart? The Jewish leaders accuse him of treason, of, of inciting an insurrection. Pilate sees right through this. Right in verse 18 tells us that he knows they're just jealous. They're just envious of Jesus. But while he doesn't believe that the accusations are true, he fears the crowd. And so he's looking for a solution and he sees a possible solution, right? Every year at Passover, he releases a prisoner. So maybe he can just release Jesus to them. Maybe that'll get him out of this bind that he's found himself in. So that's our third question from the text. Let me just actually read this section for us again, starting in verse 15. He says this, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And so they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. And so when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? Because he knew that it was under envy that they had delivered him up. And besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man. I've suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priest and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. So the governor asked them again, which of the two do you want me to release? And they said, Barabbas. And if we jump down to verse 26, it says that he does just that. He released Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The third question sets up this powerful picture of the gospel. Pilate asked the crowd, right, who do you want me to release, Barabbas or Jesus? Again, in verse 21, which of these two do you want me to release? On the most basic level, we can see a comparison here that shows the, right, the guilty Barabbas, the guilty, is set free and the innocent dies in his place. And we could certainly see that, but let's dig in a little bit deeper and see if there's maybe something else that makes this even more incredible because I think that there is. The first thing I want you to know is actually not in the text here, but our very earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of Matthew, it's commonly understood by scholars that Barabbas 
actually his name is Jesus Barabbas. His sort of first name is actually Jesus. Our earliest manuscripts have that in there. It was taken out somewhere along the road, probably because people didn't like the idea that Barabbas was named Jesus. But it's in our earliest text. But what's, why does that matter? Well, Jesus means, it, the word actually means Yahweh is salvation. So here we have this guy, Barabbas, Jesus Barabbas. Yahweh is salvation. It's a common name among Jews at the time. A lot of people are wishing for salvation. So they're naming their kids Jesus. That's why Pilate here keeps referring to Jesus as the one that's called Christ. He's saying, do you want Jesus Barabbas? or Jesus, the one that's called Christ. We have two options here. And if we keep thinking about the names Barabbas, the name Barabbas means son of the father. So we have Jesus, the son of the father, or, well, Jesus, who is in fact, the son of the father. These are our two options that he's putting before them. Two people who maybe on paper look very similar. If you were to look at the transcripts of their trials, maybe they look very similar, but they are clearly very different. But if you were to go back and look at their, again, the transcripts of their trial, here's what you would find. They're both accused of exactly the same thing. They're accused of sedition and insurrection and treason against Rome. They're both accused of trying to overthrow Caesar. We're told of Barabbas's crimes in, in Mark chapter 15. It says, and among the, the rebels that were in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And so our, our passage here in Matthew calls him notorious, but he's notorious for murdering. He's notorious for attempting to overthrow the government by force. Jesus, on the other hand, is accused of the very same crime, but he's actually bringing about a kingdom that's full of life and full of peace. Very different than a murderous insurrection. And so this notorious Barabbas, he's plainly in the text, he's plainly guilty. He's been tried already. He's been convicted already. He's in prison waiting for his day of execution. Jesus, on the other hand, is clearly innocent. Over and over and over again in our passage, he's referred to as innocent. Pilate never calls him guilty. He just sends him to get crucified. He actually says he's innocent. Oh, my wife told me he's innocent. Oh, let me wash my hands because he's innocent. Over and over again, he's innocent. But what happens in the end? The innocent is sent to death for the crimes of the guilty. The guilty is set free because of the death of the innocent. The gospel on full display right here in the death of Christ. Jesus, who is innocent, died in the place of guilty sinners, but not just Barabbas. He dies in the place of guilty sinners like you and like me. First Peter chapter two, starting in verse 22, it says this, talking of Jesus, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin 
and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus didn't just die in Barabbas' place. The story of Barabbas being freed as Christ goes to die is a picture of the gospel for each of us. Because here's what the Bible says. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. And, and I know what you're thinking. Yeah, I've sinned, but I did not like Barabbas style sins. No murderous insurrections out of me, right? So I've got little sins. He's got big sins. Here's what the Bible says, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. All sin, no matter how serious it is, all of it deserves death. The wages, the thing that you earn when you sin is death. But, the greatest word in all of scripture, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. How can that be? Well, here's the way the Bible puts it. Romans chapter five, starting in verse six. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The gift of God is eternal life because Christ died for us. He died in our place. Now, we don't know what happened to Barabbas after this, right? Maybe he went right back to his murderous ways. Maybe he was changed forever. We don't know. We're simply told that he released for them Barabbas and he sent Jesus over to be crucified. But that same exchange is what happens in the life of all who trust in Jesus. We are released. We are set free from our bondage, our captivity to sin and to fear and to death because Jesus was crucified in our place. So he says, now anyone who would repent and believe in Jesus would be saved. Anyone who would declare him to be the king of their life will inherit the kingdom that is prepared for them. That's the thing, isn't it? A lot of people are really, we're really cool, right? With believing in Jesus. It's easy to do that, right? It's easy to believe that Jesus came and he died. He rose again. We're not all that keen on actually making Jesus the king of our life. We wanna, we wanna kind of treat his death like a, like a get out of hell free card. But for any of you who've ever played Monopoly, you'll remember the goal of the game isn't to stay out of jail. The goal of the game is to build a kingdom that takes over the whole board. The question we need to be asking ourselves is perhaps the next one that Pilate asks, which is this in verse 22. Pilate says, then what shall I do with Jesus? Who's called Christ. What shall I do with Jesus? That's the question that I want to ask us this morning. What will you do with Jesus? We see the answer of the crowd. The crowds just cry out against him. Let him be killed. Crucify him. Kill him. 
right? They wanted that to happen. They wanted that to happen so bad that, that later on they said, you know what, we'll take it. Put the blood on us. Put the blood on us and our children. Let him die. Why? Well, ultimately because he had let them down. Jesus let the Jews down because he didn't deliver them from Rome. And frankly, he didn't seem all that interested in delivering them from Rome. He had challenged their leaders. He had challenged their way of life. And they said, we're done with you. It is time to be rid of you. Kill him, kill him. They're so angrily opposed to Jesus that they would be willing to take the judgment for his death upon themselves and their children. We don't care what the repercussions are, just kill him. And in the midst of that, Pilate's gonna ask another question. In verse 23, he says, why? What evil has he done? But they don't answer. They just keep saying, kill him, crucify him crucify him. So let's just think about this for just a moment. What evil has he done? Well, we all know that we know the, the Bible answer, right? The Bible answer is none. Jesus is perfect, right? We, we know that. But, but the Jews here want him dead. So here's the question that we might want to ask. What evil has he done to you? What do you think he's done that is evil? Well, the Jews would have said, he has completely and utterly fallen short. He has fallen short of our expectations. He's called us to a life that is far too hard. What evil has Jesus done in, in your life? What hopes what hopes did you have that Jesus has failed to, expect, to, to reach? What expectations has he not fulfilled? What evil has he done to you? How has he let you down? How has he not satisfied you? Because here's the thing, I hear you. We all have a list of things. We all have a list of things that we might point to and we say, I thought Jesus was going to do this for me and he didn't. So what are you going to do with him? What will you do with Jesus? The crowds wanted him dead and maybe, maybe that's you. Maybe the last thing you want to do is follow a God who would call you to change your life. Because Jesus says crazy things, right? Jesus says crazy things like love your enemy. He says crazy things like sell everything you have. Give it all away and come and follow me. He says, if, you're, if your hand causes you to sin, just cut it off. Get rid of sin and your life. And, and, and don't even get me started on like the things, the sort of things that he calls sin. I mean, he's got all sorts of things that he says are sin. He says, I can't lie, even if it's gonna get me out of a bind. He says, I'm not supposed to have sex unless I'm married. Right? He tells me to stay away from drunken parties. He says that if I'm 
angry with someone, that's as bad as murdering them. And the list just goes on and on and on. And maybe there's something in your life that Jesus has, would tell you. He says, hey, it's time to give that up, but you're just not willing to do it. So what are you gonna do with Jesus? So like the crowds, we just want him dead and silenced and over with so that I don't have to think about changing anything about my life. But maybe you're more like Pilate. You know, Pilate here just wanted this whole Jesus thing to be over with so that he could move on with his life. Maybe you just don't want to have to think about it. You don't have to worry about Jesus anymore. You don't really want him dead. You just want these people out of your palace, right? Just leave me alone. Let's just move on. But here's the thing. There's no part way with Jesus. There's no middle ground. Pilate is fully complicit in the death of Jesus. He makes a big show of washing his hands. Oh, I'm innocent now because I've washed my hands, right? Here's the deal. The only thing that can wash the blood of Jesus off of your hands is the blood of Jesus. We've all been complicit in his death. That's why we need his death. What will you do with Jesus? You can't ignore the question. Jesus says, you're either for me or you're against me. There's no middle ground. So what will you do with Jesus? Will you seek his death or will you take up your cross and follow him to it? Right, that's the call of Christ. He isn't just calling us to believe in him. In Matthew chapter 16, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. To follow Jesus is to deny yourself. To follow Jesus is to stop clinging to your vision for what your life is going to be like because it's not your life anymore. To follow Jesus is to let him take over. To die to myself, to die to my vision and pursue his kingdom, his vision. What will you do with Jesus? Let's pray. Jesus, when we see the example laid out in this passage, your example, Lord, we're kind of like Pilate. We're, we're amazed at your ability to humbly and silently Hear the accusations come against you, but to willingly lay down your life for the sake of the very ones who would take it from you. We are amazed at that. You were willing to do that because of how much you loved us. And so Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you that you desire that we would come and follow you. But Lord, when we think about what it would take to do that, Lord, it is scary and it is hard and we're not sure if we're willing. And so Lord, we ask that you would give us the strength even today 
to take up our cross, to deny ourselves, and to follow you. In your name we pray. Amen.